Welcome everybody to Blackballed. My name is James DeFiori. We are starting a little bit early today. There was a little bit confusion over time. And um, for a second, I thought I lost Professor Chomsky, but we do have him here today. And I would like to thank him for joining us. Professor Chomsky, sorry about the confusion again, but thank you for joining us on Blackballed. Thank you for coming back. Glad to be here. Sorry um, about the confusion. That's okay. Listen, um, first of all, if I may, um, happy belated birthday. It was your birthday on Wednesday. So I hope you had a good time with friends and family. Um, let's get right into it. Cause I'm not sure how much time you actually have. Um, what I wanted to do is, is I read something of yours from 1967 called the responsibility of intellectuals. I read that a couple days ago and I read it three times because I was trying to figure out if I was fooling myself into thinking that it was as timeless as I thought it was. Um, I'll, I'll read an excerpt right now. With respect to the responsibility of intellectuals, there are still other equally disturbing questions. Intellectuals are in a position to expose the lies of governments, to analyze actions according to their causes and motives, and often hidden intentions. In the Western world, at least, they have the power that comes from political liberty, from access to information and freedom of expression. For a privileged minority, Western democracy provides the leisure, the facilities, and the training to seek the truth lying hidden be behind the veil of distortion and misrepresentation, ideology and class interest, through which the events of current history are presented to us. The responsibilities of intellectuals then are much deeper than what McDonald, you're referring to Dwight McDonald, calls the responsibility of people given the unique privileges that intellectuals enjoy. Um, I read that and the very first thought that came to mind was that could have been written yesterday. Sorry. The, I, 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 sorry, I, I read that and I thought it could have been written yesterday. Yes, can be written almost every minute <laughs> are we have we been in a constant state of crisis um human beings since thousands of years ago when it comes to that kind of power displacement there are always problems difficulties sometimes more serious sometimes major crises we now happen to be in a crisis that is unique in the hundreds of thousands of years of human history, uh, more serious than ever before, many respects. Uh, but yes, there are always problems, sometimes mounting to the level of very serious crises. We are now in a question, facing the question, whether the human species will survive. And a lot of that has to do with climate change and climate change, as you pointed out um, many times, uh, is the responsibility of government and individuals. However, where where does war and constant conflict and coupled that with corporate interests, how do you defeat that? Or at least how do you put that in check? Well, we're in a very strange situation. The means to overcome the crisis are known. They've been spelled out in extensive details by the International Energy Association, uh, several uh, economists who've done detailed, careful studies, including my colleague, Robert Pollan, resolution on the floor of Congress, uh, many other presentations explain in considerable detail 
how we can address the crisis in a feasible manner uh, at a cost that is perfectly manageable and that will place us on a road to moving towards a much better world. We have that on the one hand. We have the pressure of many organized, active people, mostly young, and we have the resistance of power systems refusing to implement what can be done and driving us towards the precipice. We just saw that exhibited in Glasgow a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there were two events taking place, COP26, one inside the halls where the distinguished ladies and gentlemen were figuring out ways not to do anything. Uh, their major decision was to meet next year while the world burns and see if they could think of something. Then outside in the streets were tens of thousands of demonstrators, mostly young, saying, we'd like to survive. We'd like our children to survive. We'd like a better world. You know what to do. Go ahead and do it. Well, what our responsibility is, is plain and simple, do whatever we can to make sure that that event on the outside is the one that succeeds. And if we don't do that, all other questions are moot. Um, does religion play a role in that? Because I, I remember hearing of um, American politicians, we're up in Canada, obviously, but American politicians who are, I think they're called dominionists. And what they believe is, is that no matter what they do, as far as um, decimating the planet and pollution, that God will take care of this planet. I can't tell when people who are powerful and claim to be religious are lying or if they really are religious. And I, then I can't tell which one is more dangerous. I can't read their minds. Hmm. I assume they're saying what they think. And if those opinions prevail, we're finished. It's only a question of time. We will, in fact, if the Republicans come back into power, political power next year, 2024, uh, the game may simply be over. They are a denialist party in the hands of the fossil fuel companies, uh, a semi-divinity whom they worship, who himself is the chief wrecker, wants to race to the precipice as quickly as possible in the interests of the short-term profit of the uh, ultra-rich and the corporate sector, people he works for. And that might bring us to irreversible tipping points. It's a very close call. It's not over. There's a time to do things, but the uh, gap is getting narrower. Two of the biggest contributors to to man-made climate change would be United States and China. Um, you, you mentioned, I think it was three weeks ago, that um, the United States has a, a overly combative, I'm paraphrasing, relationship with China. 
Do you, does the United States see themselves in China, maybe in the 1930s or something, where where they are afraid that um, the the type of imperialistic, uh, maybe even colonialist, uh, you know, adventures, whatever you want to call it, misadventures uh, around the globe, and and that China is now going to be the next country to sort of fill that fill that void, I guess you could call it. Actually, it's probably not a void at all because we're still doing it. But um, it, it, do they see themselves in China? I guess is my basic question. Is that what is that what frightens them? If you go back to the 1930s, in fact, uh, into the uh, China was regarded as a satellite of the United States. That's why China's on the uh, uh, has veto power at the Security Council. The U.S insisted on that. Chiang Kai-shek's China was considered basically a client state. Uh, that uh, less, In the 1950s, there was a, a extreme rise in the yellow peril hysteria, which comes up periodically in American history. You go back uh, a century, uh, China was regarded as a potential threat to the existence of Western civilization. It's my dog chiming yeah. in. <laughs> it's cute. I can't tell if it's a Chihuahua or a Border Terrier, but it's something in there. <laughs> well, in fact, it was so extreme that the progressive writer, uh, Jack London, actually wrote a story in which he said, the gist of the story was that the United States should carry out bacteriological warfare to destroy the Chinese uh, before they overwhelm and uh, destroy us, which was, of course, a utterly remote fantasy, but an indication of the kind of thinking that was going on. 1930s, it was different. Start in the 1950s, Yellow Perils revived goes up and back for a while. Right now, in uh, American, uh, the political class, the decision makers, intellectual elite, are perceiving China as a major threat to the United States. It's very interesting to ask what the threat is. Very hard to pin it down. Actually, there's an interesting article on this by former prime minister of Australia, Paul Keating, a respected international statesman in the Australian press. He uh, runs through the alleged arguments, debunks them, finally concludes that the threat of China is that China exists. I mean, what he means is it's a major power. The United States can't control it can't intimidate it, pursues its own paths, and that's not tolerable to a power that intends to maintain its global domination to rule the world. And I think that's a pretty fair assessment. The United States is unwilling to accept the existence of another power that refuses to be intimidated or controlled. Europe is a major, is potentially a major force in the world, but it essentially bows to the United States. 
if the US imposes demands which Europe doesn't like, they say, we don't like it, but we'll obey. Uh, many examples. But China isn't like that. They proceed in their own manner. They're proceeding to extend their influence over much of Eurasia, uh, moving into uh, development programs in Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization based in China already has as members um, most of the Eurasian powers. It's always, eyes obviously are on Turkey and into Central and Eastern Europe, expanding its commercial, industrial, educational programs. Uh, meanwhile, it's moving ahead in technological development the United States is unable to stop any of that. And uh, that's considered a threat. What it should be, it should be considered as an opportunity to cooperate in dealing with existential crises, which we will either cooperate in overcoming or we will destroy ourselves. Those are the alternatives. Did did NAFTA, or actually did free trade and the export of manufacturing to places like China empower China? Are, are they like a, is the fear of China a creation of the West um, in how we sort of started to partition our um, workers from good jobs, for lack of better words? Well, we is a funny word. You and I didn't decide it. These are decisions made by the major corporations that dominate the economy and have an overwhelming influence on the government. Their decision is we can make more profit by uh, exporting jobs to places with low wages, uh, no environmental constraints, no workers' rights, no unions. Uh, Apple Corporation can make more money by uh, uh, authorizing Foxconn, for example, a Taiwanese company, to run its operation, its manufacturing operations in China, while uh, Apple increasingly moves towards becoming what's called a rentier corporation, which makes its money on licensing patents and so on and moves its corporate headquarters to Ireland so that it doesn't have to pay much taxes. Now that's called capitalism. That's the way it works. Corporate leaders try to maximize profit, market share, their own salaries and so on. That's a capitalist economy, okay? And those in control made the decision for their own benefit that this is the way they could operate. We didn't decide it. Did the way that uh, politic, geopolitics has been shaped in the last 60 years, or since you've been sort of as an activist and a dissident, I think I, think I, I heard Amy Goodman call you uh, a renowned dissident the last time she interviewed you. And I kind of like that because it, has an, it, it implies a consistency among your work. I know you probably, you don't like talking about yourself from what I hear, but you have seen a lot 
in your lifetime through your lens of history and and through that lens i'm wondering just to switch gears a little bit what have you seen that has made you positive about the direction of humanity those young people in the streets of glasgow many others like them a lot of pro a lot of bad things have happened in the last in my lifetime a lot of good things too so the country this country the united states in many ways is a much more civilized country than it was say in the 1960s could run through it uh, the reasons for these achievements are people like the young people in the streets in glasgow when i wrote the article that you quoted 55 years ago uh, was the same thing. That was Vietnam, young, the context, correct? Vietnam, the civil rights movement, almost entirely young people at the forefront, sacrificing themselves, snake workers going through rural Alabama and freedom buses, great danger trying to encourage a black farmer to take his lives in, life in his hands and register to vote, led to the civil rights movement. Young men in the 1960s who were refusing to join in a brutal, murderous war of aggression in Indochina, putting their lives on the line. Many suffered severely. Many other young women beginning to raise sets up small consciousness raising groups the beginning of what led to the feminist movement well these things are happening all the time we see it happening right now the climate strike extinction rebellion sunrise movement in the united states which did bring the biden administration to develop a moderately reasonable climate program those are reasons for hope it's a shame that this is the responsibility is delegated to the young as they sometimes point out our generations betraying them not false and we have to take up that responsibility and work to support them hi i'm steve yurko and i'm tara sands now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. 
If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Um, regarding civil rights, I asked you this, I think, last time as well. I, I think I asked you if if there are lessons that modern-day activists could learn from activists in the 60s and 70s, and, and you did say yes. Um, I have a hard time understanding why voices like Coleman Hughes aren't heard as often as spokespeople from Black Lives Matter. Um, why is it that there is there seems to be a pushback on diversity of thought inside minority communities and oppressed communities? And I don't know if you have an answer for that. I I, I feel like it's a little bit mysterious. Like like you're not allowed to be a black moderate, for example. Oppressed communities are like others with more problems in privileged communities there's plenty of diversity of opinion in oppressed communities also there's diversity of opinion uh, with the extra very serious problem that they are severely oppressed that's in the forefront of their existence it's not true for privileged people like me and i presume you so i do okay rising but uh and uh you know they have to work out their problems in their communities we have to work out our problems in our communities our community happens to be the community of the privileged the educated uh we are the ones it's our it's our broad community which is in the process of destroying the world and driving this country towards deep authoritarianism. That's the privileged who are doing that. So we can talk about the things that are wrong in the Hispanic community, if we like, that's for them to deal with. Uh, we can try to help if possible, but we have big problems right where we are, major ones. In fact, the worst ones that exist. Yeah, and it's difficult to, as a white person to figure out how to be a good ally for, say, a Hispanic community or one of the Hispanic communities, because if there's diversity of opinion within that community, how do you know whose side is the right side to take? You know, like I don't it sometimes it feels like the best thing to do for people like me and you is to let them fight however they want to fight and then fight our own issues uh that that we have to deal with um like like co the corporatization of of our countries or um simply yeah. white supremacy One of yeah the when, when i hear that word i don't i don't sometimes it feels like it's um like it's been stretched like i understand the basic concept obviously um but I, i'm gonna have a hard time telling my son and this is often a a, a talking point um for some groups um like like some people in black lives matter will will say that my my son and my daughter who are seven and five um need to understand that they are part of the cogs that make the system of white supremacy i don't know how to have that conversation mostly because i don't really agree with it i feel like you have to believe in that nefarious idea in order to be held accountable for it because i don't know if i have 
time to really, f I'm just being honest. I don't know if I have time to really fight white supremacy when I'm raising kids and I'm trying to put food in their mouths. It's a fact, it's a major fact of the world in which we live. And uh, young people, I had the same question with my own children and grandchildren, have to come to understand it. And they can. They can understand that our privilege happens to be a legacy of centuries of violent, brutal oppression from which many people are suffering right now. It doesn't mean we feel guilty for the hideous actions of slave owners, uh, Jim Crow and so on, but that we can dedicate ourselves to work to overcome this legacy and to overcome the sentiment and commitment to white supremacy that is all around us in our communities, in our society, in our government, everywhere. We can work to combat that. They can work to overcome it. They can become active as they grow up, as many others are, and say, we understand the history. We want to overcome the legacy. Um, are there, you look like you might have to leave. So I'll make this the last question. I'm really sorry. To, I'd like to apologize to my audience because um, I had thought that we were starting at one Easter time and Mr. Chomsky yeah. thought that we were starting at um, noon mountain time. I think you thought. Yeah, everyone makes mistakes about That's it. Okay. Can I, can I, can I get you back in 2022? We can work something out. Yeah. Okay, good. Let me just ask you this one last question because um, it's something that I I wanted to ask you last time as well. Um, you, there, you, you have stated before, um, and this is uh, paraphrasing Glenn Greenwald now, that if you have people that you look up to, that doesn't necessarily mean that you agree with everything that they say. My example is Christopher Hitchens. I, I thought he was a brilliant man. I thought he was a brilliant orator. His recall was exceptional, um, but I didn't agree with him on the Iraq war. Um, I just wanted to, to, to allow you to just say whatever you wanted to say about this idea that you and Glenn Greenwald are feuding because you had a disagreement. Because I find those little infighting things among progressives, um, when they don't, especially when they don't exist, because I don't think it exists. I don't think you have a feud going with him. Um, uh, how damaging that is and, and how much of a gift it is to like uh, to political opposites. So I was wondering if you could just speak on that before you go. Certainly is. Uh, you mentioned uh, disputes and disagreements upon Hispanics. That's harmful to their common interests. They have to work it out. Same is true in spades for us because of the much greater power and influence in the privileged communities of which we're lucky enough to be a part. So if uh, uh, a Christopher Hitchens uh, supports the Iraq war, worst crime of this millennium, we have to work harder to overcome that within our own communities. There's no other answer. Our prime concern always is what we can hope to influence. I can't do much about the crimes that are being carried out in Myanmar, for example, can deplore them, can maybe do something. I can do a lot about the crimes that are being committed right here and under our influence and control. So just a general principle of elementary morality 
And you're an intellectual with a responsibility, I would say. Just to circle that. Our activities on what we can influence. I'm afraid right now I'm going to have to. Yeah, that's okay. Um, Mr. Professor Chomsky, thank you for joining us. And I bet you any money your dog really loves Glenn. Okay. I'll <laughs> give a good the dog regards. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you. That was uh, Professor Chomsky. And uh, once again, I'd like to just say to our audience that, you know, we had a, a, a schedule that we wanted to adhere to and it just didn't work out. And that's fine. Um, Mr. Chomsky's trying to figure out how to hang up on me. Here, I'll hang up on you. <laughs> I'll try my best. Anyways, my cursor is going crazy. Mm -mm. This is weird. I think I've been hacked, Gnome. What? <laughs> my, my cursor won't allow me to hang up on you. Hold on. Hold on. Oh. Look at there. I'll hang up on you. Don't worry. I know. Let's see if we can. This is the greatest. Hold on. We're almost there. I my guys, you should see my computer died earlier, two days ago, and now my cursor won't allow me to land. On, there you go, he's gone. Um, yeah, rushed interviews with people that you love. Um, I don't know what to say about that except um, it's unfortunate. But I did make him agree on air to come back and join us in the new year. If you look at my face right now, I'm all confused because my cursor won't stop moving, and I can't figure out why it's doing that and as soon as i there now we're good um i'm gonna invite someone on the show randomly <clears throat> because i feel like i've shortchanged you and i don't want to shortchange anyone um i'm just gonna uh, fill you in on what it's like to to have a conversation with noam chomsky over email over a period of like seven months i uh i interviewed him on may the 6th um just this year and when the interview was over uh i thanked him and he said uh no problem and we had a couple email exchanges back and forth just talking politics and stuff and then i think it was in july it was my birthday actually when I emailed him and I said, Hey, do you want to come on the podcast again? And uh, he said he was having health problems. And he said that, um, that, um, you know, it might not work out. And I just kept on sort of pressing him. And then he was like, you know what? I had a good time the first time. Let's do it again. So <laughs> what I would do is I would email him once a month since around August or September, maybe once every three weeks, just, just to nudge the thread back to the top of his inbox and be like, okay, um, we're all set making promos. Now, you know, my, my boss told me, you know, this interview better happen, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and he came back on, I had Maxime Bernier on two days ago and I got a lot of flack from people, people who probably really like Noam Chomsky. Um, and, they told me that uh, what they thought was that I was giving a platform to somebody that didn't deserve it. And I, I couldn't disagree more. Um, I think that you should be able to talk to anybody. <clears throat> and Noam Chomsky is one of the most interesting historical figures of all time. He's 93 years old. I might not have a chance to interview him again, 
And uh, to be able to sit down with a guy that's seen so much, man, I wish I could have had, I had 90 minutes with him last time. Um, but, I, I, you know, he has seen, he, he got his doctorate in 1955 in linguistics. It was something called uh, grammatical theory, I think, something like that. I tried to read about it. I have no idea um, at all what grammatical theory is, even after reading about it. And um, I don't, I can't even fathom being around for that long and, and being as coherent and as um, intelligent as he is. His climate change position now is like, is sort of, I think his last mission that he has, he's got a, uh, He's got a clear mission in mind to 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 save the planet. He he doesn't seem to think that the planet's going to last much longer than 2024. Probably a little alarmist. Maybe we need that. Uh, there is a tendency for activists, I think, to sort of overreach and to 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 maybe exaggerate what the problem is. Um, but he's so smart that it's really hard to. It's really hard to disagree with him. I don't know many people um, on the right who who could sit down and uh, and listen to Chomsky talk and, and think to themselves, "Oh, I could could totally go toe to toe with that guy." The um, The New Yorker magazine in two thousand and three called Noam Chomsky the the devil's accountant, and you know what they meant was he seemed to be the only guy, uh, the only intellectual who was willing to call out his own government for some of the um, injustices that they were imposing onto not just their people, but people across the planet. He, uh, this quote that I, that I read at the beginning, and if you're just joining us, um, Noam Chomsky got here at around 1235 and he's now gone. Um, there was a mix up on the time zone. He said mistakes happen. I'd just like to point out that it was not my mistake <laughs> because it's important that I say that. There is a um, there 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 is a consistency to his work. And this paragraph that I read at the beginning, um, with respect to the responsibility of intellectuals, there are other equally disturbing questions. Intellectuals are in a position to expose the lies of government, to analyze actions according to the causes and motives and often hidden intentions. He was talking about Vietnam at that point. And Vietnam um, was being promoted, I guess you could say, by certain public intellectuals who, and, and some of them were journalists, who were saying to their readers um, that it was, who were saying to each other that it was okay for the government to shield the truth from citizens for some sort of greater good, this existential greater good of protecting the nation. And what Chomsky was pointing out is that um, there was a journalist that he was referring to. His name escapes me. I think his last name was Schlesinger and Ernest Schlesinger. Schlesinger. And he was what he was saying was that um, this journalist came out and told the truth in, an, in, a, in a New York Times article. And about a month later, he, he sort of retracted that truth and he said that he lied. 
in that first article. But his motivation was that he was condoning the state's eagerness to shield the full truth and to be transparent with citizens. And what I love about Chomsky, even if I don't agree with everything that he says, is this consistent need to sort of say, fuck you to the state, you're lying. Governments lie. They do it all the time. And he's able to articulate the like blatant hypocrisy of governments. I've said this a million times. It drives myself nuts. So if you've heard me say this before, well, fuck it. I'm going to say it again. Um, politics is the art of managing hypocrisy. And the government is the mothership of politics. It is literally defined as hypocrisy. If you look at, if you look at what governments do, what governments say, and they'll lie in real time. And there is an end game to, to that type of uh, ruling class. And I don't think that end game is a positive one. There is, I can't think of anything that includes power that won't ultimately result in some sort of violence and uh, hypocrisy. I was telling um, Dean Blundell before the show that one of my favorite moments from a podcast that he did yesterday with uh, Lachlan Cross and James P. White and uh, Bonzi was when Lachlan started to talk a about a story about a homeless person and and I might get some of this wrong, but how this homeless person, and by the way, Lachlan, I was telling him, he, he told this story so beautifully that I was like, that I was almost choked up. I'm almost choked up just recalling it because first of all, Lachlan's face is very earnest. He's a beautiful man. He really is. And he was telling a story about a homeless person who, instead of some guy giving him 20 bucks, he gave him a little place to stay in his restaurant, like a room in a cot or something. And he's like, wash dishes and you can have, I think it was room and board. And I guess that was a long time ago. And now that person has a trade and has a job and has a family and has a house. And he was saying to Lachlan that he couldn't imagine himself being where he is today if it wasn't for that act of kindness, which helped him a lot more than 20 bucks. So when I think of what Chomsky's been doing for 60 years, at least 70 years, really, but let's, you know, since the early 1960s, he is like a superhero of activism. The longevity of this man, the the fact that you know that his heart is in the right place. Do I agree with his his um, idea of what white supremacy is? Not really. You know, I kind of feel like if we go to any country in the world, because a lot of you know activists like to say things like, you know oh, uh, this society was built by whites for whites. And it's like, yeah, okay. Pretty sure Nigeria built their society for Nigerians. I'm pretty sure China built their society for Chinese, Japanese, same thing. And that's what people do. They, they, they you know, no one builds a society for people that don't live there. So uh, there's, there's a couple points of separation, but it doesn't matter because I know my place in history. 
And it is not in the same universe as Noam Chomsky. He went to Fred Hampton's funeral. He was speaking out about these issues, about the civil rights in America, especially among black people. At a time when it was still fashionable to use the N-word, at a time when black people didn't have the right to vote, you know, at a time when, you know, fuck, even today interracial dating still seems to have, uh, you know, rubs people the wrong way. Um, and, and, you know, I don't like to label people racist unless I feel like they're actually a racist. I find that term is thrown around too much. I do think that um, the four years that America spent under the thumb of the big orange daddy or the bod, as I like to call him, um, it didn't, I don't know if it created more racism, but it certainly lifted the curtain a little bit. And I wonder if in his quieter moments, if someone like Chomsky has this thought that, not that it was all for nothing, but that the slow or the, the, the lack of a slope, it, it, it's, it's the incrementalism of progress, not just in the United States, but in the whole world. Like, why is it like that? Why, why is it that powerful people who can finance revolutionary ideas in science, you know, like the Koch brothers, you know, they made a fortune in chemicals, but these chemicals had a purpose. They did the job because they figured out the science and they figured out the job and they applied that science to that job, fracking, things like that. So they're, they're smart enough to know that the climate Yes, it's been changing since before man got here. But we have put so much bullshit into our atmosphere and we have polluted this planet so much that they don't have a scientist beside them that's like, you know, kind of killing the planet. <laughs> you might you might want to roll in the profits for a second. Um, I admire people that, that spend their entire life dedicated to, to causes like that. I wish I had some of that in me. I wish I had uh, something in me, you know, that would give a job to a, to a person that had nothing. Um, a lot of my friends don't know this, but I was homeless for a little while in 2006. And not the kind of homeless where like I was the guy on the couch for like a year and a half before that. But then for like two weeks, three weeks, something like that. I slept in parks. I didn't want, you know, my family had probably had enough of me borrowing money. Um, you know, my friends had enough of me being the guy on the couch. And uh, and I had nothing. I didn't ask anybody for change. But fuck, I was helpless. I had to just, I had to figure it out. And, you know, I, 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 I don't, I'm bringing that up because I feel like being an activist must feel like, especially when, when progress doesn't move as fast as you would like, I, I feel like being an activist um, must feel like you don't have a roof over your head sometimes. You know, like some of the stuff that they were fighting for in the 1960s, you know, people are still fighting for. Um, I hope he lives to be 110 years old, Noam Chomsky. Um, and if he does, I'll have him as on the podcast as a, as a 108-year-old man. You know, it'd be cool if he was one of those dudes that put his head in a jar <laughs> and then he just got to, he, he still showed up at, at, at activist protests, but like, you know, 
Amy Goodman's grandkid was like holding up Chomsky's head or something like that. That would be awesome. Um, but he did say, Professor Chomsky did say he was going to come back in 2022. So again, if you're just joining us, uh, Noam Chomsky made an early interview appearance and an early departure. We're going to get him back. And thank you for joining us on Blackball. I really appreciate it. Have a good one. Hey listeners, I'm Christy and I'm Melissa and this is Buried Motives where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back and that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.